0: listeners it's sam here again and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show paces ahead have courses for the start of 2024 and listeners here's a possible sweetener for you i will be there at their first course of 2024 that's the 16th to the 19th of january please do come along and say hi if you catch me it would be great to meet some of you if you're there but there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well, the 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market leading online revision PACES resource. I think most PACES sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labeled Pass Test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-PACES podcast, Sam here, and this episode, I'm going to start off by asking you a question. Have you ever felt significant anxiety before an exam, or maybe even felt anxiety or stress whilst at work during these ridiculously busy and testing circumstances we are currently working in? I predict the majority of you would say yes. And what's more, I've heard so many stories of doctors over the years who get such significant nerves around the time of their PACE exams that it detrimentally affects their performance. This episode is here to hopefully try and help you address those feelings of anxiety as I speak to expert in stress management and consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Samila Sinha. She was a real delight to have on the podcast and gave us so many fantastic strategies to help us manage stress whether around the time of exams or at work. Keep an ear out for my particular highlight, which is her four C's approach somewhere midway through the episode, which I absolutely love. Not only that, but towards the end of the show, Samila and I discuss stress at work, which we all are probably encountering during these testing circumstances. And I hope that it gives you some ideas for managing stress if you do encounter it at work. But without further ado, let's get into this week's show. Welcome to the Pre Paces Podcast. And this week we are again doing something slightly different from our usual programming. I was inspired recently by someone I saw in an online group asking for help and advice on managing stress, anxiety, and nerves around the time of exams. Now I know many people who have sat paces in the past and been unsuccessful, not because they didn't have the knowledge, skills and attitudes of a prospective medical reg, but because their exam nerves kicked in and caused a brain malfunction, resulting in them not performing as well as they potentially should have done. So I thought this would be a good episode for the podcast. And so I've managed to invite another fantastic guest to join us for this episode. I'm joined today by Dr. Samela Sinha. Samela is a consultant psychiatrist based in London and is a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. She is a health and well-being ambassador for doctors in the NHS and founder of Living Life Stress Free Limited, which provides stress management courses and workshops for professionals and entrepreneurs. She's also a best-selling author of An Expert Guide to Stress Management, which was a Kindle number one bestseller in 2019, as well as Depression, a Guide to Recovery. She's also a motivational speaker on a variety of topics including stress, resilience, improving relationships and achieving optimal health. She's kindly taken some time out of her busy schedule to discuss stress management both around exams and I thought it may be helpful to discuss stress management in the NHS in a broader context as obviously this is something which is affecting us all in the current climate. So Samila, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
1: My pleasure, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: Well, it's fantastic to have you, and I thought I'd just outline the aim for today's show will be to discuss stress as it applies to exams with a particular discussion relating to paces, and then a little bit later on, we'll be discussing stress management in the NHS uh, more generally, hopefully giving our listeners some help to manage some of the stress they may encounter in their everyday practice. But first of all, Miller, I just wanted to um, ask you, how did you first find your interest in this particular field?
1: see i 've been in mental health for more than um, fifteen years, and uh, working in the NHS and um, being a trainee and then a consultant, I have found that stress could be a trigger not just for mental health conditions but stress could be a trigger for burnout among professionals and I wanted to do something um, because um, there was there 's been a lot of like kind of a stigma and a lot of reluctance to seek help especially among doctors, you know, um, we, we are the healers of the society and we are supposed to look fit. But when it comes to our own stress levels, um, either we don't acknowledge it or we don't know how to manage it. So that kind of led me to uh, look into this a bit more and to see how I can raise awareness and how I could kind of help my colleagues. And uh, that's how my interest evolved.
0: Well, fantastic. And hopefully we'll come on to some sort of practical applications of, you know, everything you've dedicated your life and career to uh, to investigating. So without further ado, let's start this episode looking closely at managing stress. So to start off, Samuel, what would you define as stress? And then how might someone know that they're stressed?
1: So there are lots of definitions of stress. It has already been um, identified or has been called as a fight or flight reaction. People know this term quite a lot. But um, when I looked into the wider definition of stress, this one really fits. Um, uh, and I really like this di- uh, definition. It is um, stress is the overall physiological and psychological impact on a person in response to to adverse or uncomfortable, actual events or perceived events. Now, I like the word called perceived events, because when we are worried, when we are stressed, we kind of imagine the worst possible outcome. For example, in an exam situation, a student who's preparing for exam could be stressed imagining the worst outcome, like not passing the paces, exams, things like that. So it is a perceived event, but the brain does not recognize the difference between an actual event and a perceived event or an imagined event. And the cascade of uh, chemical reactions, the hormone release, it's the same response. So it doesn't matter whether the trigger is real or the event is actual or a perceived event the response is the same that's why we have to be you know so mindful of our stress responses and our stress reactions
0: yeah and what are some of the more common symptoms or or signs that people might recognize when they realize they're stressed
1: so i'd like to divide it into two categories one is the physical response that the response that happens the body reactions And the other is the psychological response. So physical response could be things like raised heart rate, sweating, raised blood pressure, palpitations, things like that. And the psychological reactions could be, or the symptoms could be a feeling of fear, anxiety, worry, in extreme cases, panic attacks. And there could be also sleep disturbances, appetite changes, um, mood changes, like low mood, irritability, and things like that. So these are the more common signs and symptoms.
0: And I wonder, are there any particular signs of stress which are maybe less obvious and which maybe our listeners might not really attribute to stress, but might still be a sign that someone is stressed?
1: So if somebody is stressed on a more chronic level, on a more day-to-day level, they could be experiencing things like low energy levels, stomach problems like diarrhea, constipation, chest infection, repeated um, chest infections, a frequent cold and infection, poor libido, anger issues, because stress can reduce some of the uh, other functions of the body, like the immune system um, is compromised, um, the digestive system is compromised, the reproductive systems are compromised, So, because the energy is focused, um, more energy is driven out to the brain and the muscles of the body, because it's a fight-or-flight reaction. Remember the original term, when thousands of years ago our ancestors, they used the stress response as an essential means for survival. Because when they were faced with life-threatening danger, they needed this fight-or-flight reaction to protect themselves. And that's why we survived as a species. But now, in the modern day and age, we are stressed by um, minor events like things like maybe the traffic jam, a job interview, an exam scenario. So we are like more, uh, we tend to be stressed more often, more frequently, which leads to chronic stresses
0: yeah that really uh one of the things you mentioned there which really resonated with me is that when we're at work we often have the the sort of acute stress and we feel the need to focus very closely on performing well at work and i i'm sure i'm not the only person who's said something similar to this which is after maybe four or five days on call or a long weekend on call you then after that set of shifts someone then or i have in the past often fallen unwell after that set of shifts and is that sort of a similar sort of reaction to what you're thinking about in term or what you're talking about in the sense that during that time all our energy goes into maintaining our energy levels whilst we're at work and then when it's actually time to relax our body sort of is more vulnerable to you know something like a minor illness
1: yes absolutely i, I agree and we us we we do, we're not doing the shift just once. We, we do it like, you know, a few times a month and things like that. So it's a buildup of all these stresses, which leads to this kind of responses.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so maybe let's start thinking about the management of stress in in any scenario, really, not particularly related to exams. But is there a first step, which is your usual approach to helping someone manage their own stress? What's the usual first step of advice you would give someone?
1: My first step of advice is to be a bit more mindful, a bit more aware of their surrounding, of the um and thinking a bit more and reflecting. Are they stressed? Are they experiencing stress at work? Are they experiencing stress in relationship? And just to, to be able to question themselves because if they're noticing some symptoms like sleep disturbances, changes in appetite, um, you know, easy irritability and um, you know, they're having relationship problems it's time to question that, um, have I done, you know, is there something wrong here? Is is what's going on? It's just like pause and reflect. So that's the first thing. And then once you identify the stressor, obviously, the next step is to try and resolve the stressor. Because if we kind of like overlook, and if we try and undermine it, most likely things is that it's not going to go away. In fact, it's going to probably escalate. And in the long term, it's Um, quite harmful for our physical health, actually, and our mental health.
0: And so maybe now we can come on to approaching exam anxiety specifically. And in our medical careers, exams are something we sign up for. It's something we should anticipate. We have a date for our exam, which we look forward to, or maybe not look forward to, wrong, uh, (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe not in that way. But unfortunately, they're often essential to, to progression in our careers. So, so with that in mind, how best can our listeners try and prevent the onset of stress in anticipation for these exams, particularly for those of us who are more prone to anxiety and and feelings of stress?
1: See, I'm not an exception. I used to face stress myself, particularly around exams in medical school and as a trainee. So, I at that time, it I I didn't learn, I didn't know better. But now, when I reflect back and I think, what could I have done differently? that would have made a difference. So one of the things, my first top tip would be to plan ahead. We know there is an exam coming up. We know that there there is a date, right? So if we plan ahead, and if we kind of set ourselves small goals rather than leave everything for the last minute. So that is quite important. And the second is like, negative avoiding negative thought patterns because as the exam date approaches we kind of get sucked into this negative thought pattern maybe comparing ourselves with others and kind of being over of ourselves so in these circumstances uh, trying to be a bit more positive using positive visualization techniques um, you could use mindfulness exercises mindfulness meditation especially before going to bedtime and also first thing in the morning uh, people can practice um, some positive affirmation, um, mindfulness, meditation. But on a more practical aspect, I think it's very important to look after our physical health, like eating properly, paying attention to the diet, uh, sleeping well, and not trying to, because uh, this is a common habit, of the students that try and uh, pull an all-nighter, you know, before an exam. And that's really quite harmful for the body. Um, so, and also try and do some exercise because, um, you know, we tend to neglect exercise before exams, a few weeks before exam, we just sit and we study. Uh, but it's really important to go out and have that fresh air. Um, also we could use some, um, you know, relaxation techniques like muscle relaxation techniques while we are sitting in our desk studying. There are lots of uh, desk yogas out there. We could practice that. And ultimately, what I found really helpful for me particularly was to um, have a peer group for studies just to share our, you know, uh, you know, common interests and also, you know, get together for studies. Cause that I found was really helpful rather than trying to, you know, do it on, on your own. Because uh, sometimes, you know, this is for me, I'm talking from my own experience is that when I sometimes read and I try to remember things, um, it works but for to some extent but when I listen to somebody and more like a narrative more like a story um, then I tend to remember more so things like so we could use lots of uh, strategies around how we could uh, use revision more creatively
0: yeah definitely and I completely agree and I think we've we've said before on, on this podcast one of the best things you can do is, is to is to try and revise or, or work at uh, revision in a group so yeah absolutely I just wanted to go back to one of the things you mentioned. Particularly, you mentioned uh, positive visualization um, techniques. I wonder if you could just, in in a sort of uh, Paces or Oski style context, could you just sort of describe what uh, what prospective uh, exam candidates might might do, uh, which which they could then apply to to their own preparation.
1: So, for an exam scenario, I, I'm, again, I'm using myself as an example. I used to use this uh, technique to, just before an exam, I used to visualize that I'm walking into the exam hall and I'm greeting my examiner, especially in OSCEs. And I'm having a really good time. I'm really interacting positively, calmly. And I used to visualize myself doing that. And then my next visualization would be the aftermath of the exams. I used to visualize, okay, I've um, I've succeeded in my exam and I've got posting. And that really worked for me because when I was focusing on the positives, I did not have time to dwell on the negatives. You know, you know, MRC psych exam has part one and part two. So the part two, I practiced all these techniques and I really, um, you know, passed the first attempt. Whereas in the part one, I really fell victim to all these negative thought patterns. And I was really nervous before the exam. And I could see that having these kind of techniques really kept me calm. I think when we are faced with an examiner in OSCE scenarios, it's best to just focus um, on what we know best and not, not try and impress the examiner so much with lots of extra knowledge. Cause I think we can um, waste time that way. And also we kind of tend to waffle a bit. Uh, so yeah. So it's very important to remain focused and centered.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Speaking about my own experience, you, you know, you, you've spoken about your own experiences there and, and just noting as well that I'm not an exception to this either. And, it, and in fact, in one of my unsuccessful PACES attempts, in fact, in my feedback, it said started well, but then derailed. So I wonder if we can segue from preventing the onset of stress to talking about the heat of the moment which is obviously in, in that example I just gave, what happened to me in one of mine. So PACES is a high cost exam. There's only three sittings a year and there's always a, per, a perception of there's a lot riding on the exam for our listeners. And as I said at the start of the show as well, I've, I've known many fantastic doctors who have had the knowledge, skills and attitudes of uh, successful registrars, but they failed due to acute stress in the moment of the exam. And so it's a time pressured exam. And when I was doing a, a slight bit of research for the episode, I was finding a lot of these techniques, but they unfortunately often would say something like take deep breaths for 30 seconds. And in a six minute exam, it's tricky to give up that much of the time to do that. So I wonder if you can provide any guidance to our listeners as how you, how you can help manage the, acute stress of the moment as well as implementing the prevention strategies which hopefully should help but is there anything else we can do in the heat of the moment
1: so i developed um, a technique called the 4c approach to stress management it has uh, four c's calm clarity choice and change and i teach these 4c strategies in my workshops and uh, mostly to businesses entrepreneurs and other professionals um, I never really thought of this 4C in relation to an exam scenario. So I'm just going to experiment with you as we walk along. So how can we apply CALM? So in, in CALM, there are three stages. The first stage is delay reaction, then analyze and then take a measured response. And I think it applies to um, an OSCE scenario. Like for instance, you've got a six minute station. I think you're given one minute to read the exam, uh, for the question I think. So what what happens is sometimes we either read the question too fast or we come to conclusions too too fast. So when we read our question, I think we could easily take a five-second pause. Like we could ca- take deep breaths for five times. I think that's quite possible. So delay the reaction and then analyze. Analyze the scenario and then take a measured response. So I think um, the measured response is in opposed to a knee-jerk reaction. And When I developed these four stages, I meant um, in relation to real-life situations, right? But I think people can uh, try and experiment this in an exam scenario to see if I can just take five deep breaths and then read the question a bit more carefully, analyze the question. I used to write uh, notes. I used to make notes during an exam, an OSCE exam, so reading the question. So that sometimes helps. I don't know. Then the next is clarity. Clarity. Clarity is assessing the problem from a 360 degree perspective. When, when I um, did poorly in some of the OSCE exams, like in one or two stations, I still remember, I did not take, um, the, que- the question was there, but there was a catch. So like it's important to take a 360 degree assessment because sometimes they try and catch you out. That They give the obvious problem, but they're actually trying to see, are you doing maybe, say, for example, Have you considered capacity assessment for this patient? Have you considered safeguarding? Because these are the outliners which we don't usually consider. Like if there's a child or there's a carer in the picture, are we then considering these gray areas? So the 360 degree assessment might work in clarity in exam situations. And then we could use clarity to plan and prioritize our responses. So once you have a response in your head, you could prioritize your response. There's no harm in mentioning all possibilities of that you could consider, you know, if you could say, okay, I'm gonna focus on these. These are the my top tips for managing this patient. But I could also mention that in the last one minute I might say, okay, I'll consider this, 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 and that. So we could plan and prioritize our response. And then the third C is choice. Now choice actually it's probably not relevant to exam scenario, but it's uh, it's about it's it's about empowering ourselves that we always have a choice on how we choose to respond to stress. we could choose to be angry, we could choose to be um, anxious we could choose to be calm that we have control we really do have control over our responses, and whatever response we choose, there will be some positives and some negatives, and we just have to take more responsibility of our actions like not to blame our failures on some, some other things, but just to, take, to acknowledge and take more responsibility. And then in choice, I also have something called circle of expertise. Now, circle of expertise is probably relevant before you go to exams in terms like, you know, sometimes we kind of focus so much on the exams that we, you know, when we are going to the ward, we are seeing patients. Sometimes everyday scenarios, they teach us valuable lessons. And if we can kind of pay attention to um, whatever is out there that's trying to teach us, whatever is, being really tuned to the outer experience. In an exam scenario, those experiences will definitely come back to us, to remind us. Because crammed knowledge opposes real-life knowledge. I think real-life knowledge can stand the test of time. So that is really important. And then the fourth way is change. So the change says that when we start implementing calm clarity and choice in our lives, we will see changes within us and surrounding us. Over time, changes will become part of our habit. Now actually change also means lifestyle changes like having um, changing our the way we eat, the way we rest, the way we relax and things like that. So, when we develop and when we uh, practice calm clarity and choice, it becomes part of our habit and then, because um of the neuroplasticity of the brain, we kind of we can acquire new habits and we it can we can it, they can be ingrained as new memories and we can let go of our knee jerk responses, our old default unhelpful coping mechanisms we can really change those um it is possible like if somebody has six months of preparation they could do a couple of mock exams and they could try and see if this technique works for them
0: yeah fantastic absolutely love the the 4c approach and i I can see how that's so applicable to many many instances where you find yourself under under stress and another thing, if any listeners haven't uh, already, and I don't know if you've read it, uh, Samilla, but there's a book uh, called "Why We Sleep" by uh, Dr. Matt Walker, who talks about uh, short and long term memory in the context of sleep. And off the back of that, I look back at my time at medical school, doing exactly what you said by staying up until you know the early hours of the morning and uh, cramming, whilst waking up again at nine o'clock and actually in hindsight it's the worst possible thing you could do to retain the knowledge that uh, i needed to keep for for my exams so yeah i highly recommend that for any uh, any listeners who are, who are keen on reading about sleep and its effect on uh, on our uh, memory retention so I've got a, yeah, another question for you, which is something which I'm sure many of our listeners have come across, and, and maybe you have as well. It's a common scenario I think many of our listeners will, will empathize with, and, and it may not even be a connection with paces or exams, but just medicine in general. Medicine is a very, what, we, what I'd call type A dominated field. So we're very motivated people. We are competitive by our nature and have a strong focus on personal achievement, and as a result of that failing an exam uh, it's it's a dreadful thing for anyone to experience but i somehow feel like medics it hits it hits us harder maybe than others and so how best would you advise someone to sort of recover or um adjust to the to the feeling of uh, failing an exam and and recover in a way that's going to set them up to succeed in future
1: i think um one must have a positive attitude about Failures in exam, because exams don't define us who we really are. Exams are important, but I have known personally lots of doctors who may have failed one or two exams, but they have gone on to be so successful in their careers. So exams are just snapshots in the wider reel of life. So I would say think of the bigger picture and the positive fact that sooner or later we will finish these exams, We, we are going to pass. So in, in this scenario, I would say think of how privileged you are and, you f- and feel grateful to have accomplished this far this far in your life, in your career. And look back at the positive accomplishments and have faith in yourself that you will overcome this setback. Even if a setback happens, that you will overcome it and bounce back to, in no time. So this is a quote I really like. It's like, um, prepare, prepare for the worst and you know, do your best. Do your best, but also expect that even if things go wrong, you're going to face it. So I think uh, we have to be prepared for failures. I think the worst thing is to be unprepared and have it as a shock. So um, whenever I go for exams, I mean, right now I don't have any coming up, but in the, in the last few years when I've had exams, I've always prepared for the worst scenario. And uh, I've always said, okay, if I don't get through this, this is my plan B. This is what I'm going to do.
0: One thing which, again, I think listeners will empathize with is going back to the sort of medical type A personality, some listeners will feel as if in the anticipation of an exam, they feel like they should be working pretty much all the time. And they feel a sense of guilt when they're not, you know, they might take an, an evening off and watch TV or go for drinks with friends or, or whatever. And sometimes I I've known people who felt a real sense of guilt for not revising pretty much all the time. So how would you maybe try and assuage some of those anxieties of our listeners?
1: See, there are some real issues and the the guilt and the fear and all of this are like kind of aftermaths. So what I would kind of advise or what I would say is that, you know, there's no sense in feeling guilty after, you you know, things going wrong or you've not done it. So you are, everyone, all of us, we are entitled to breaks we should acknowledge that we are you know humans and we do need to recharge our batteries and we need to rewind and we need to we need to have a break so having break times giving yourself due break times rewarding yourself to begin with makes will make us feel less guilty so say for instance if you've worked really hard uh, for a couple of days and say okay one day a week is my day off you know i allow myself to enjoy i will allow myself so giving permission to yourself is really important. But the guilt comes because of other issues. It's not just because you've taken the time off. It comes because of procrastination, lack of preparation, poor organization, poor time management. So the guilt is coming because the whole week you have not done your bit. And now on top of that, you're enjoying yourself. So you're really saying that like, you were not even working hard and now you're even taking another break. So... That, that's the way to overcome this is to really kind of plan the breaks as well. We usually plan how to study, but we never plan our breaks. And I would say plan the break and plan, allow yourself to enjoy, go out with friends, have a drink, you know, watch a movie, you know, enjoy nature, go out for a walk. I think this is a so essential part of the whole exam preparation. And also another advice I would say is focus on here and now because we have no control over the future, but we can manage the present. So decide how you want to spend the present time. Is it, a, is it feeling guilty, procrastinating, blaming yourself, self being self-critical, worrying about the future or making the best use of what you've got? Because once you've spent that time enjoying and you, now you're here feeling guilty, but there's not going to be any positive outcome to that guilt feeling. So bearing in mind so we just have to be our own coach (laughs) self-coaching
0: yeah absolutely and as as you say having a plan and sticking to the plan is paramount because at least then you've earned your break and then maybe you will feel less guilt so yeah absolutely love that okay i've got one last question for you on stress and exams and this is sort of a quite an open question but i wonder if you could give us any sort of myths or misconceptions about managing stress in exams. so what might be some advice which y- you might often hear uh, people give when actually you know that might not be very accurate i know this is a bit of a curveball so if you can't think of anything obviously that's fine but um if you can think of any sort of myths of stress management then this is your chance to debunk them
1: doctors um are guilty of this um i've known some of my friends who've used that like they use medication self-medication to manage stress. I don't think that's a good solution. I don't I don't think because they might think, oh, if I take a beta blocker, my stress is going to go away and things like that. And I'm really not in favor of self-medicating because if at all, it's actually not, so, it's not solving the real problem. You're not addressing the problem. You're just trying to postpone it. You're just trying to, you know, quick fix and quick fixes never work. I think the, the key thing here is you've got, say, You've planned your exams and your, your exams is a couple of months away. Either you are committed to your exam. You have to ask yourself, am I committed to this exam or not? And if you are committed, you know, it's like a relationship. You know, what am I doing for this relationship? What am I doing for this exam? So, you know, the outcome is not in your hand. You, you can pass, you can fail, but at least you should give it a good try. That's what people can do in relationships. You know, at least give it, give it your best try.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for chatting to us about exam stress. But for now, we're going to change topics very slightly and we're going to be discussing stress within the NHS. So the NHS workforce in general has been under a huge deal of stress over the last two and a bit years. So I thought it would be sensible for us to give our listeners some help in managing any stress they may encounter at work. I thought I'd start off with a, a buzz phrase that I've found or come across recently, and that's moral injury. And in in my research for the sh- for the show, I found sort of a variety of definitions, but I wonder if maybe you can explain to your listeners what you understand moral injury and what you understand it to, to be. What, what is moral injury?
1: See, I can give you a bit more um, roundabout answer to your question. So there was a paper which was published um, in the, by the GMC uh, in 2019. It was titled Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients by Professor Michael West and Dame Denise Koya. And they identified three core areas. If these three core areas of doctors are not addressed or if they go wrong, it could lead to burnout, it could lead to stress and even moral injury. The first thing they said was, um, the first uh, point was autonomy or control. Having a voice and influence, having the right working circumstances, right work conditions and manageable and predictable work schedules and rotas. So when this is hampered, when this is impacted, it could lead to stress. The second is B. So they categorized it A, B, and C. So A was autonomy. B is belonging. Belonging, it meant about the quality of team working, the culture and the leadership within the teams and organizations, having a sense of purpose and meaning. So when you feel that you don't belong to your team, when you feel that you have no voice, that's when you could have moral injury. That's when you can, you can have burnout and stress. The third thing was C competence competence it looked at workload reviews demand resource balance to deliver this high quality safe and compassionate care it also involves ensuring that doctors and students have enabling and supporting supportive supervisory support so this is this when there is poor supervision when there is uh, overwork you know the demand and resource balance is not well met all of this compound so when they came up with this paper, they also made lots and lots of recommendations. And I feel that it's so relevant to the NHS, things like, and especially relevant to trainees, trainee doctors, because they're in a particular post only for a couple of months and they move So, um, So they hardly feel that they belong to a particular team because they're most likely they're doing the rotations and things like that. So having a proper induction, having good supervision, having regular breaks at work, preparing for deadlines, having, you know... Um, allowing the supervisor, giving them time to prepare reports and things like that. And also when you have to look after yourself, how do you look after yourself in a stressful environment like the NHS? Because you have to look after your emotional well-being, maintaining a healthy lifestyle, having work-life balance. All of these factors are really common to stress management in all disciplines, but is also relevant for doctors. And one of the things, I mean, I do um, stress management trainer courses for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. I don't know if you've heard of this. There are lots and lots of uh, doctors who are members of this organization. It's um, the short form is called BSLM, British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and they have so much resources out there. Most of them are free resources uh, on how to improve diet, sleep. Um, things like that and I I do a course for them it's called the stress management trainer course Uh, the next one is coming up in November but what we teach there what I teach I particularly focus on communication because improving communication can also reduce stress levels and all of this I mean it's not just one factor out there there's so many factors and the more we address it you know the less stressed we will be I don't know if that answers your question
0: yeah, I mean, it certainly gives a good overview of what moral injury is. Um, it's it's certainly more roundabout than the sort of small definition that I uh, I've, I've sort of compiled from a number of sources, and, and so maybe I'll, I'll try and just sum up with with the sort of brief version which I found, which is essentially it's a this is the brief definition I sort of compiled from a number of different sources. So damage done to one's conscience or moral compass when that person witnesses, perpetrates, or fails to prevent acts that go against the person's moral or ethical beliefs or values. And actually, a lot of the resources I'd found compared it essentially to a form of post-traumatic stress. And so I, th- I thought of a couple of examples related to working conditions as we're finding them at the moment and and certainly in the early stages of the pandemic. So for example, people witnessing patients passing away without family members being present. That is so core to our compassion as being doctors that people should have family members present at the most vulnerable times of their lives And, and witnessing patients passing away without having that conflicts us internally in a real human way. And another thing which I've found, certainly within myself, and I'm sure many listeners have more recently, especially with the volume of patients we're now seeing coming into hospital is we're managing a lot of patients who are unwell in the back of ambulances that are queuing outside the emergency department. Now, that for me, personally, is I felt very conflicted thinking we are, as a, as a body, as a trust, as an NHS, are not providing a standard of care, certainly in comparison to years that I'd worked prior, where seeing patients in the back of an ambulance you know if you told me 5 years ago that was what we were doing i'd have, i'd have laughed and so the co- the possible consequence of this is another phrase which i came across uh, which maybe you can expand on as well which is compassion fatigue and this is when working with such unwell patients on such a regular basis or or in these extreme circumstances your ability to empathize or feel compassion for others is Uh, degraded and you have a diminished ability to do that and it's obviously pivotal in our work and so maybe it it may draw on some of the things you mentioned earlier with your four c's but how how can we as clinicians best try and manage any moral injury or any compassion fatigue we may experience in these testing circumstances
1: so i get what you're saying and it's it's becoming more common now i mean Especially looking at the demand-resource ratio and things like that. I mean, obviously the resource issue is there, and you're work, you're working, especially if you're working in an A&E department and things like that. This is quite in focus. This is from my own experience. Again, I'm drawing from my own experience. So when we used to work in an acute inpatient setting where the turnover of patients would be high, and uh, bed pressures and the you know demand for discharges, all of these issues, when we were facing those issues. Um, we would have, um, in the morning, before we start work, we used to do something called a team huddle. First thing we meet is we used to check on each other's well-being and we used to say, how are you doing? How's how's your day been yesterday? And how are you feeling today? And we just check on each other's um, emotional well-being. And then if we have any serious incident, we always debrief. So debrief with the patient, debrief with the patient and carers, but also have debrief for ourselves first off. And, and that actually, at the heat of the moment, having... A debrief is quite important and also quite helpful. And then on a more longer term basis, we have something called reflective practice, where we kind of look back on the previous week or previous month. It could be in a situation scenario like supervision, or it could be um, something. Among the psychiatrists, we used to have is called balanced group. In balanced group, we just meet as trainees, trainee doctors, and we just reflect and um, we discuss difficult cases. So these things um can help and things like obviously supervision is very important peer group meetings supervision all of this but ultimately you know when you're out there on your own facing difficult scenarios i mean when you're going when somebody's going through compassion fatigue i mean it can easily lead to depression it could easily lead to ptsd and lots of lots of other issues and being in mental health i mean i completely can relate to that i mean there's been lots of cases where even doctors have had uh, there's been lots of studies where you know, burnout has been studied among doctors and um, i mean but not necessarily compassion fatigue but burnout was studied and they found that these doctors when they had experienced burnout um, they had reduced uh, reaction time their coping mechanisms reduced and they were like self-medicating, either with alcohol, Um, they had eating disorder problems and things like even depression. So uh, it's very important to be aware of these issues, I think, and then take the time out, take the time out to address them, I would say. And there's no easy answer for this, I'm afraid. Sorry.
0: No, no, I, I completely understand. We're not trying to, you know, find a magic, a magic sort of pill. But I think it's just, as you say, an awareness of the types of signs and symptoms we discussed right at the start at least if if our listeners find themselves feeling like that and hopefully they have have some degree of awareness or insight into their own feelings i think just talking to talking to others in in possibly of the same grade or alternatively approachable seniors registrars or consultants as a first step and obviously they've they've got supervisors clinical and educational supervisors And it is important that those concerns be taken seriously. I've been very fortunate and had very good educational clinical supervisors, but it's very important that those things are taken seriously. And so what I would say to trainees is that if you or anyone who feels that their concerns aren't be taken seriously, that you can speak to other seniors within your trust who have a responsibility in medical education. So um, either if you're a in internal medical training, you should have a training program director who should be able to listen to your concerns. Um, and even the director of medical education as well would be people to speak to. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so if we can uh, take a step in a slightly different direction now and mention another buzzword, which I uh, mentioned briefly at the top of the show, which is resilience. I've lost count of the number of emails from my trust that had offered me resilience courses. And I wonder what your thoughts are on resilience. And maybe uh, you could start off again by trying to sort of define what is meant by resilience.
1: So the standard definition of resilience is the ability to bounce back from adversity. Now, that terminology has got both some negative connotations as well, because that means that if you can't bounce back so you're not a resilient person. That means it's your fault. You know, it, it's like if somebody is not resilient, it's, it's, a, it's a weakness. And that is the reason why a lot of doctors, they don't seek help. Because they're afraid of showing their weakness. But it's actually not true. Um, given the circumstances that we work today in today's NHS, is so different from how it was maybe even 10 years ago. When I was a trainee, you know, things were very different. And when I see trainees today when I supervise trainees, I can see that their stress levels are really, really high because of lots of other issues. So to recognize that it is not a sign of weakness that, and to recognize that resilience is not just about that individual, but it's also about the organization. Uh, it's, so now when I look at resilience, I look at a team, team effort, and how do we learn from our, from um, say, for instance, if we have a CQC inspection or say, for instance, if we've had a serious incident or whatever. And then how do we bounce back from that? How do we, because it could be quite demoralizing. It could be uh, quite traumatic for staff members who go through investigations, who go through uh, complaints, procedures. So, and it can be very distracting from their day-to-day work. So how can they then come back to work? You know, get get over those issues. So some of my top tips here would be keep a positive outlook. And take any setbacks as learning opportunities because this is the best way we could learn. Um, accept change and being flexible because NHS goes through so many changes. Day, you know, Every year, probably lots of changes are happening. So keeping an open mind about this. And when we are faced with problems, keeping the bigger picture in mind, because like, say for instance, if we have a difficult carer, if you're facing a difficult carer, We know that that carer is probably one of thousands or hundreds of carers we have treated. And if 99 carers are happy with us and one carer is complaining, that's okay. Then we have done a really good job because we've kept the other 99 happy. So that is the bigger picture. And the other thing is don't give in to knee-jerk reaction that are emotion-driven and maintain perspective. I would say that's very important. I teach that in communication skills and how to improve communication skills. And the other things is very rare, the other way to, you know to keep yourself motivated in your job, to keep yourself going is actually, again, at the end of the day, the inner drive, we have to look at what drives us to be healthcare professionals, be it a nurse or a doctor, is that our inner desire to help others, to serve the society. and that is the bigger picture. And if we can use that as a positive affirmation and focus on the positives, so I think all of this. Just to bear, keep that perspective in mind. Difficulties can come, but that's not. That's not the end of it. There's going to be light at the end of the tunnel, sort of thing.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you, just with that in mind, because I was sort of, uh, I did plan a sort of follow up question which which you've you've basically exactly described, which is it, it puts the onus on the employee as a perception that you're a a weak staff member uh when in reality it's it's a glaring errors in the system which are affecting our listeners' ability to do their jobs and so one related question I guess which can be a sort of short ish answer if you can is do you perceive it as a positive term resilience or in this context of possibly interpreted as a staff member being weak would you say it's more of a negative term because I sort of feel like it's it was very popular for, for a period of time and now it almost seems to have gone out of vogue a little bit
1: you see it's important to be aware of resilience I don't know if it's I don't want to say positive or negative I don't want to label it as a positive or negative but I think it's important to be aware of it because at the end of the day somebody could question your put, uh, your um, you know, credentials, your credentials as a doctor, and then you have to stand up and say, look, I'm aware of what's going on. Things like this. I think it's very important to be aware. I think it's important to be aware of resilience and what it means and how to improve it. Because at the end of the day, we are all learning every day. And if we can learn how to improve resilience, I I don't see any harm in it.
0: Excellent. I guess building on that, one of the things you, you mentioned is if we see colleagues who may be suffering with anxiety or stress let's say we if if we see colleagues who who do suffer from anxiety and stress what is the best way that we can try and support our colleagues who might be who might be suffering in that way
1: it's a very tricky question because the last thing they want to if if somebody is not outright seeking help and they're trying to hide it the fact that they're confronted by questions like I can see something is wrong with you. I think you're stressed. This might actually make them even more defensive. Um, I think uh, just an open-ended, hello, how are you? And, you know, genuine caring with a genuinely caring attitude. I think speaking to our colleagues and just trying to explore how the day has been, just a more open-ended questions are probably the best way to start it off. And then if they kind of volunteer information then obviously, you know, if you know somebody who can help them, you know, obviously signpost them, you know, you can say, I know so-and-so, um, he's an excellent, um, you know, he, he could be a manager, senior manager in the trust, they could say, I know him, he really helps out and why don't you approach, I mean, those are the other areas, but in terms of practical issues, a lot of people are um, having difficulties in personal lives, which then, reflect onto workplace. And those are more tricky issues. And these are, you know, more difficult areas. And if that individual is not ready to seek help, there's so little that we in the workplace could do for them. But, you know, it's, if you, if you're on that level that you can share your concerns, I mean, there's no harm in doing that, I guess. Um, By the end of the day, that's why I'm saying it's so important to be aware of the signs of stress. If everybody can have some training, especially trainees going into a new career, the new medical students going into the first year of medical college. Um, if they can have awareness in, in terms of like training, stress management training, then they will know what to look out for. I think that training at the ground initial stage is important. Uh, and also what steps they can take to address this. A lot of people, um, they are stressed, but they don't know how to seek help. So it is the responsibility of the employer to Maybe say, even have posters out there, you know, well being, well being day, have well being day, have, um, you know, celebrate stress awareness month. April, the whole of April was stress awareness month. And employers can take advantage of these um, events to promote, say that, look, we are doing this activity. If anybody has concern, you can come and seek help, things like that. So the stigma associated with mental health and also burnout kind of stops healthcare professionals from seeking help, I guess. And so um, I think this is a government issue, I I guess, that they do have to work more harder to combat stress, uh, stigma. Line managers and supervisors, they also have some responsibility, looking at job plan, working hours, ensuring the trainees are taking adequate breaks at work um, and things like that. And I think when people started working remotely, because of the pandemic, um, a new type of stress came out because um, they were not used to working from home, blurring of the boundaries between work and home, not being able to take their annual leaves, not being able to take adequate breaks. I think all of that kind of added to the stress levels.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you sort of alluded to it uh, just a moment ago, uh, Samela, which was my next question, which is any advice you might be able to give to either new starters in the NHS or give to existing NHS doctors to support new starters so you mentioned final year medical students we're now seeing medical students come through who were doing their placements on COVID wards at the start of the pandemic and we're seeing uh, in the arrival of international medical graduates who might be working in the NHS for the first time so is there anything in particular we can do for those uh, those groups of people who might have a degree of stress and anxiety about working in the NHS?
1: I think um, it is the responsibility of the NHS trust. I mean, I would always, always, I'm quite strong on that because at the end of the day, it is the employer responsibility to look after the employees, make sure they are well cared for. So on that level, I would say having training, having lots and lots of awareness training, having lots of um, avenues, even put it in induction training as a pack, induction pack, how to how to recognize stress, how to manage stress levels. And what, who is, like uh, f- there are lots of NHS trusts who have a health and well-being ambassadors and I was one of the health and well-being ambassador, um in one of the NHS trusts in London. And the government is actually giving lots of funding for this. So trusts need to be aware and even senior doctors who are more in a manage- managerial position, they need to Uh, capitalize on this uh seek funding and say that you know we would like to have a health and well-being team set up in our trust and you know the at the end of the day having awareness and doing something about i think that's the first step
0: absolutely fantastic and we've already touched on a couple of uh these points as as we've gone through um and and you've been candid enough to give us some of your experiences as well and um So this question, I know you you may have sort of covered it uh, slightly earlier, but it was how how do psychiatrists manage the stress or anxiety of seeing or managing difficult cases? And you've mentioned sort of the the team huddle uh, at the start of a a, a shift, but um, is there anything else uh, that that psychiatrists do to manage the stress and anxiety of of difficult cases? So,
1: I mean, it's the same as other specialities. We have a lot of... um, reflective practice groups we have supervision uh, i think debrief is the top if i have to pick one that really helps in acute situations it's a debrief and not just for psych- the doctors it's all for the whole team i think when you're part of the team when you feel that you belong to the team then your anxieties are shared your goals are shared so i think the first key is the doctor needs to feel part of the team and he need to work in harmony with the team and not feel oh, I, I'm somebody different, you know, I'm working solo. He, The doctor has to feel part of the team. And that is the key to kind of alleviating stress to some extent.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, Samela, I think that was pretty much everything I wanted to cover in this episode of the podcast. And um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention to our listeners today?
1: I would like to wish all the um, exam candidates the best of luck for their upcoming exams. And I wish them all the best. (laughs) And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Oh, thank you very much. And it's been a real delight to to have you on and and listen to your expertise in, in, in stress and stress management. And, uh, as I say, we've hugely enjoyed having you on the podcast today. It's given me some new perspectives of thinking about stress and anxiety, and I'm positive it's been helpful for our listeners to both in working up to their exams and also in their, in their day-to-day work as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, Dr. Samila Sinha, consultant psychiatrist, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Uh, and as I mentioned at the start of the show, best uh, bestseller is titled An Expert Guide to Stress Management, and it's available on Kindle for those who want to learn more. Uh, you can also go to livinglifestressfree.com for some more information about the workshops and coaching that Samila and the team offer. But listeners, that is the end of another episode of the Pre-PACES podcast. I hope you found this episode helpful. Hopefully some of you will be able to take uh, Samila's advice into your paces exams and your clinical practice don't forget to like follow and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts if you enjoyed the episode let us know on our twitter which is at pre paces podcast Uh, if you want to go above and beyond you can support the show at buymeacoffee.com slash pre paces podcast but for now we're just about out of time thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time on the pre paces podcast